Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and today I have Dr. Norman Horn on with me to co-host. Hey, Norman. Hey, Doug. Good to be here. And we have a guest that we have been wanting on the show for a good while now, and we're so excited to have him on. His name is Lee Camp, and he is a professor of theology and ethics at Lipscomb University in Nashville. He's the author of Mere Discipleship, Radical Christianity in a Rebellious World, Scandalous Witness, and co-author of Resisting Babel, which in episode 202, we had a conversation with John Mark Hicks, who was the editor of that book. Lee is also the host of The Tokens Show, the world's only long-running theological variety show, which you can find online at tokensshow.com. Lee, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. It's great to be with you, Norman. Really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, we're, we're so excited to have you here. And, you know, Dr. Camp, I'm a longtime fan, uh, so first-time caller, I suppose. But again, we're just so glad to have you here for so many good reasons. Um, you know, we, we know a lot of the same people. We've run in the same, many of the same circles, being, you know, in the Churches of Christ together. Yes. You know, so I'm, I'm so glad that you're here to talk about David Lipscomb and your, your work. And I hope that everybody will get a really interesting sense of just how powerful you know, our, our wonderful God is in resisting the powers that are around us. And so I kind of want to start here with Resisting Babel and David Lipscomb a little bit. Sure. So you co-wrote this book or were a co-author on this book with Dr. John Mark Hicks at Lipscomb University. and you wrote the final chapter in it, which was uh, is a, an absolutely phenomenal chapter. First of all, and, and it's probably the best. It's probably the best chapter. Oh, I, 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 it might be. It might be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it because there's so many there's so many good things in there for us in the churches of Christ to hear. But there's you know in the churches of Christ at least we have such a history of being uh, kind of I don't know a little combative with our own history at times, right? And and so you know not to get really into the weeds about who and what the churches of Christ are and all that. If you really want that, you need to go back and listen to, to episode 202 again with John Mark Hicks. But for anybody who's going to go read Resisting Babel, and we do recommend it at LCI, we recommend it for everybody. We think it's a fantastic book. But for what it's worth, with your work in that and the way you think about David Lipscomb and whatnot, what are some of the things that you want people to most walk away from when they learn about David Lipscomb, about the, the Christian's engagement with the powers and, and your work in that chapter in particular. Yeah. You want to kind of enlighten us a little bit on that? Yeah. It's been, um, what, two years since I wrote that chapter. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to dig into the recesses here. But I think that first I just will say that your comment on, I don't know how many of your listeners are from Churches of Christ or not, but I think that this is true not only from folks from Churches of Christ, but from many sort of conservative American Christian traditions is I wish we were more combative with our history. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of us don't have the slightest idea what our history is. Yeah. And if we would actually take our history more seriously, we would find resources there where people have grappled with these very important theological 
ethical questions. And we have a lot, a lot to learn from them. And so I think definitely Lipscomb is one of those people that we have a great deal to learn from. And I think that, I think he often gets dismissed out of hand. And I think the way a lot of times people will dismiss him is they'll say things like, well, Lipscomb said we shouldn't even vote. And then they'll just, then they'll be done talking about him. And I think that's just horrifically unfair to treat somebody like that because he, he actually was a very insightful, helpful interpreter of the principalities and powers. And so I, I think one of the main things I would want people to see in Lipscomb is that he helps us realize that anytime we're talking about engaging the principalities and powers, it ought to be characterized by a sort of deep ambivalence or ambiguity. Yeah. Because I think that just going back to the issue about voting, for example, in my mind, voting ought always to be an ambiguous activity because, especially when you're talking about voting in federal, federal elections, you know, you're, you're voting, for example, for someone who has taken certain vows to defend the Constitution. And there are certain things in the Constitution that are, that are problematic from the perspective of basic Orthodox Christian convictions. And so when you're, you're putting somebody in place who's taken a vow to defend by arms the Constitution, Lipscomb himself knows that that's problematic. And it's problematic because, well, from lots of different ways, and you, if you want to follow, ask me the follow-up there, I'd be happy to talk about that more. But yeah. I think that we should realize that he helps us see the ambiguities and the need for ambivalence about engagement with the powers. Yeah, there's there's definitely a sense in a lot of American Christianity, this almost unquestioned, well, we often we'll call it civil religion at times. Right. That even if we don't agree with our leaders at all given points and whatnot, it's the system that matters. It's some kind of almost mythic allegiance to something that, you know, perhaps that should be examined a little better. And and Lipscomb calls that into question. I was really floored to read that, you know, in the book on civil government when I kind of discovered it actually in the, you know, in the Austin Graduate School Theology Library. Yeah. I had no idea that thing existed at the right, time. Right, right. You know, uh, some years ago, I remember listening to Tom Wright was in Nashville and um, I was in this kind of small gathering listening to him to do a lecture on eschatology and the ways in which the New Testament eschatology of the kingdom come yet not yet here fully, the now but not yet kind of apocalyptic eschatology stuff that should inform this alternative way of being in the world and so forth that a lot of people will be familiar with. I heard him talk about, you know, having learned that. And as I listened to him, I was thinking, well, I actually learned that from David Lipscomb. You know, Lipscomb is the guy who, in many ways, he was saying things about eschatology that have become very in vogue by the time you get to the late 20th century. Right. But he, he was doing this in the late 19th century because he realized that, as he says in the preface to civil government, there's this line where he says, after a lifetime of studying the scriptures, because, you know, he compiles this book at the end of his life, and it's a lot of writings from the Gospel Advocate, which he had edited for those so many years. But he says, after a lifetime of studying the scriptures, he said, I've come to the conclusion that the whole of scriptures may be summed up in this one line, that thy kingdom would come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And what he does then in this book is he says, if the gospel is proclaiming that God's kingdom has come and we see the nature of that kingdom, then this 
inevitably draws us into a tension with, hopefully a creative tension, but a tension with the powers that be because the kingdom of God is alternative to the way the powers that be want to run the world. And at the heart of the gospel is this nonviolent, merciful love of God made manifest in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so from that simple but profound starting point, all sorts of fascinating ethical implications flow from that. So again, you know, Lipscomb is doing something 100, 120 years ago that was, again, has become somewhat in vogue these days, but it was radical in his day, and it's been terribly important for us to kind of recapture this vision of the meaning of the kingdom of God. Lee, a few minutes ago, you, you said something about the Christian taking an oath of office at a federal level, and they are defending the Constitution. You use the word problematic for many Christians. And I can imagine that it, with, with a libertarian audience, we have at least a mild affinity for the Constitution for a number of yeah. reasons. <laughs> um, however, I don't suspect that most of our listeners think the Constitution is sacred or, you know, it is not on par with the Scriptures in, in any way. Yeah. Other than it can be, you know, it can be useful in rhetoric in defending liberties. And it's also, you know, in some ways a rule of law to an extent. But I would love to hear more about what you meant by that, that sort of passing comment. And I think you invited us to ask you more about that because <laughs> you kind of paused that anyway. Sure. So, yes. And I did want to yeah, ask. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think the notion of liberty and even a radical liberty, in my mind, is central to the gospel. And it's what makes it so alternative to all of the nation states of the earth, including the United States. So what we have in the gospel is an invitation to this liberty that goes all the way down. That is, we serve a God who gives us such liberty that we are allowed to reject our own maker and creator and redeemer. And this God does not force us to love God, does not force us to serve God, but invites us to love God. And that's a, that is a radical liberty. And what we see in a crucified Messiah is a Messiah who did not think he had the mandate to make things turn out right. And that liberty was so extensive that he allowed his enemies to kill him, that God in Christ took on the rebellion, took on the animosity, took on the hostility of all of us who have in our various ways rejected God and took that on God's self. And then in the resurrection, the father proclaims that this way of the crucified Messiah is in fact the way of God in the world. That is the resurrection in scripture is seen as vindication of the way of Christ. And so, for example, in Colossians, you get this crazy assertion that says that in Christ's crucifixion, he disarms the powers. And the way I read that and way I understand it, which I don't think is a, a novel way of reading it, is that the powers, their ultimate weapon is the threat of death. They, they wield a club of punishment and ultimately a club of death trying to, to make things turn out right. 
And what Colossians says is that Jesus, in his crucifixion, disarms them. And so if you flash back, for example, to the, the scene of Jesus before Pilate, and they have this showdown, and Jesus says to Pilate, you'd have no power except God had given it to you. And he says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. So what Jesus does is he disarms the powers by saying, you can't control me by your threat of death. And I will obey God the Father, even though you threaten me with death. And he still obeys. And he thus disarms the powers through that nonviolent witness and obedience and strips them of their power. And then, as I said a moment ago, in the resurrection, he is vindicated in that way of being in the world. So in my mind, that's what the Christian church is called to be, as poorly as we do it as dependent as I still am as a person, as dependent as we, as we still are as people upon violence or making the world turn out right, uh, we're called to this sort of nonviolent engagement with the world that is, a, that is an extension of a radical, radical liberty. Nation states, on the other hand, don't do that. Moreover, Paul in Romans 13, for example, depicts God still using the powers prior to the consummation of the kingdom of God in using a sort of police function, a sort of police force to check the chaos of peoples. And so what we have in Paul prior to the consummation of the kingdom of God is this sort of tension between our calling that's depicted in Romans 12 and then the reality that there are many who still will not obey the will of God and the purposes of God. And because of the the pain that occurs in that, God allows the powers that be to check the violence and the chaos of the world through something like the police function of the state. So there's that tension there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's always kind of trying to navigate that tension that causes a lot of our ethical dilemmas. But that's the way I would see that. So it's it's a, because of that tension, I do think we, we inevitably have a sort of ambiguity or ambivalence about the nation states, even including the constitution of the United States. Okay. So, and of course, a lot of people think I'm crazy. So feel free (laughs) I don't think you're crazy, ladies. Trust us, we don't think you're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) No, and in fact, this is one of the kind of conversation points I tend to have with people who are on the far left in, in the Christian world is that because we, the resurrection vindicates the way of Christ, I take this, and and Scott McKnight in Kingdom Conspiracy sort of spells this out in one of his chapters, that for the kingdom of God to function properly and to accomplish its ends, we don't need the state. And he wasn't making a statement about police forms of government, as, you, as you're saying here. But I just wonder what your, your thoughts are on that. It's like, if you want to accomplish good in the world, if you want to achieve social justice, however biblically defined you want to get, you know, in that conversation, which that's a different conversation. Like, if those are your aims, why do we need the state? Why isn't, you know, the church and individuals who are Christians praying and seeking God's will on earth as in heaven? Why isn't that enough? And that's, been typically my challenge to those that are sort of, I I call them the far left, but just the left Christians. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that there's probably a couple of different issues that need to be disentangled there. And I I guess the first thing I'd want to point to is that, is the normativity, the consummating normativity of the Christian calling. It's what I I like to call it, the proleptic stance of of the Christian ethics. And so the proleptic is that we are to live now in the present, a future that is coming, but we're so confident that it's coming, we seek to live it out now. And so 
you see this, for example, in the early church. One of the ways in which they thought about the reason that Christians should be nonviolent is not because they were naive to think, that well, if we'll be nice, everybody else will be nice. Instead, it was that they believed that the kingdom of God, which inaugurates the peaceable reign of God in human history, has begun in Christ, and therefore they believed they were called to live nonviolently and not help Caesar fight his wars because the kingdom of God has broken in. And they believed that it would consummately come in the future in which finally all war would be unlearned, but that it has come even now and the church is called to that. And so going to things like justice, going to things like generosity, going to things like uh, peacemaking and healing, all of these different ways of pointing to particular practices of the Christian church, we ought always to see that is, that is the calling of the church in the world. Uh, going back to Colossians or, or to Ephesians, it's, it's to, we are to show to the principalities and powers the wisdom of God in the world. This is the, this is the calling of the church, that as a community of people, the world ought to be able to look at the church and say, this is what the world was created for, is to live this way. Now, we, we fail at it over and over and over again. But the calling of the, of the church is to embody a community of people that bear witness to the ways of the kingdom of God. So in, in certain ways, to use your language there, you know, it ought to be enough. However, that being said, one of the things I try to do in, in my book, Scandalous Witness, is point out that I think that social policy of the powers that be still ought to matter to us because it matters to our neighbors. So one of the things that, that I saw happen after I wrote my first book, Mere Discipleship, is I would hear people use some of the themes in that book or use some of the themes that they picked up from the you know, so-called neo-anabaptists, the Hierawasses and so forth of our age, who I've learned very much from, and I love Stanley and think very highly of him. But people would pick up some of that kind of neo-anabaptist language, and then they would say, you know, we ought not care about what happens with the state. And, and I think, well, I see why you might say that, but what happens with the state matters to people, and it matters especially to the poor and the marginalized and the weak. And so even though, again, going back to what I said earlier, even though I'm going to always have a certain ambiguity about any social policy, because I know under the power of sin, it can always go askew and can end up oppressing rather than liberating, as it's often intended, uh, even though I know that can happen and I know that does happen historically, nonetheless, relative political goods make a lot of difference for our neighbors. And so, you know, it, it mattered, for example, for women 100 years ago when the state of Tennessee helped ratify the amendment that gave women the right to vote. The Civil Rights Voting Act, uh, it mattered to African-Americans because it, it enforces and makes real their participation in mechanisms of power. And so I think that relative political goods matter a great deal, but we still have to disentangle from that the ambiguities of it while also holding on to the particularities of the calling of the Christian community. I can't tell if I'm making any sense. <laughs> Maybe we should do a video podcast sometime just so that you can see our reactions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you're making a lot of sense, Dr. Camp. And, and even in Resisting Babel, you talk a little bit about in, in uh, kind of your, in the section of that where you sort of improve upon or, or engage with Lipscomb's material in an active way to say like, here's some things that perhaps we should consider 
as sort of means of improvement. Right. And part of that is that we could go out and just circle the wagons. As an old Dr. Weed saying at, at Austin grad, is like, we could always just go and circle the wagons. But as we've, and you even cite, you know, uh, Niebuhr's Christ and culture in, in the book, there are a variety of ways in which we can continue to engage without being of the world in this regard. And I, I think likewise, we can, there are ways we can engage with the state, but not be of the state. And those are battles that we pick and choose, but they matter. Right. If all we needed to do is circle the wagons and, you know, there's really no point to this podcast. <laughs> but but <laughs> we don't believe that. There are things that we can do, um, you know, both internally, and by that I mean both internally in our own minds, internally within the church, but also externally and how we engage with our fellow human beings around us, our neighbors, and then how we engage with the church. I mean, with the, sorry, the, as the church against the state or with the state, however you want to put that. I think those are important to, to really consider. We don't want to fall into the trap of just saying, well, you know, I guess all we need to, I think it's, it is a bit of a trap to say, I guess all we need to do is focus on, you know, nothing but just need to talk about the Bible and that's it or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the ways I put this, I think I do this both in the, I know I do it in Scandal's Witness and I think I raised it in the Babel book is, I prefer what I call an ad hoc Christian response as opposed to any partisan or ideological one. Yeah. And and what I mean by that is that because, and, and again, I ground this explicitly theologically. That is, we know that prior to the consummation of the kingdom of God, in which death will finally be defeated and all the power of sin overcome, we know that in our lives individually, and we know that in our lives as church communities, and we know that in our lives as participants in various institutions, social institutions, that any and everything can go wrong and any and everything can be marred by the power of sin. And I think that Christians would do a lot better in public service. If they want to get involved in public service, I think that we ought to start with the doctrine of sin saying any and everything that we do can screw up. <laughs> and any and everything that we can we do can have blowback that we have not anticipated under the power of sin. And we are fools if we don't take seriously yeah. the dangers of any sort of ideological commitment, right or left. Well, and Christians of all people should be the most aware of that. Absolutely. It's that sort of call to humility rather than a moralistic self-righteousness that could make all the difference in, in the sort of witness Christians could have in the public square. If we would start with a sort of humility of saying, my goodness, we're all caught up in this, this drama, and that even when we're trying to do our best, we can end up doing awful things. Mm -hmm. That's a very different place to start in public service than that sort of moralism or so-called biblical, you know, Christian value stuff that often does such damage to Christian witness in the world. I think this is a, a kind of a great transition point to talk about the, a scandalous witness as, as a kind of a whole here, because that's a, you know, we talked about resisting Babel and, and Lipscomb, but scandalous witness is a great book. And I think it's, it's important to definitely highlight kind of what are you trying to accomplish with that book in particular? Cause it has, a, it's a bit of a different message, but it also is, I mean, it's radical. So let's talk about that for a sec and, uh, and, and go with, sure. Why did you write this book in particular? What's its purpose and, and what are you looking to do with it? Yeah, so the actual historical occasion for the book 
being published came out of Trevor Thompson and Erdman's coming by my office one day. And, and he basically said, look, we're trying to publish books that give a competing account to the publishing houses that are printing Trump, Donald Trump as Messiah. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you got anything? And I said, well, actually I do. I've been working on this a while. And so next thing we know, you know, we've moved to contract and so forth. But to I want to say that and then quickly say, but it's not, the book is not about Donald Trump. The book is about the ways in which I think Christian witness has been co-opted by the narrative of America. And rather than seeing the gospel as its own beautiful, particular, challenging, radical narrative uh, that's going to stand in both judgment of and celebration of particularities of the American nation state. Until we can see that, we've not understood the gospel. Mm -hmm. Another way to put it is this, right? So what I say early on in the book is that we Christians have tended to think too often that Christianity is not political. And you'll hear people say that, you know, Christianity is not political. And what I'm trying to argue in the book is that anybody who says Christianity is not political doesn't have the foggiest idea of what Christianity is. Yep. <laughs> and because, because what, I'm, what I'm trying to say there is that, no, you know, the kingdom of God, even that language is political, right? So political, the art of politics is the classic art of asking, how do we arrange the affairs of a community? And it asks questions like, what do we do with money? How do we deal with enemies? How do we do practices of reconciliation and forgiveness? How do we deal with marriage? And these are the things that Jesus talks about all the time, Right. And moreover, as I said earlier, this gospel is grounded in this radical liberty and this radical commitment to nonviolence. And I think that we've missed that. And so we've, we've been so caught up in the American story that we've missed the beauty and the genius of what the gospel is. You've said multiple times, I think, in both books, that the great thing about you know, the gospel is that, well, one, well, one of many, of course, is that it is political, but it's non-sectarian. And I, I think that kind of speaks to what you're, where you're going with this, in a sense, and even as it pertains to America qua America. Right. Kind of unpack that a little bit more. And what, you, what do you mean when you say non-sectarian? Because, I mean, I'm part of the Church of Christ sect, am I not? Or what do you, what do you mean by that exactly? <laughs> yeah, and well, I, I think I do use that word non-sectarian. The one I probably use even more than that is non-partisan. Right. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm trying to say by that is that when some people hear me say something like, well, Christianity is political, they'll think, some, some will respond and say, that's right, everybody needs to get on the Republican train. Yeah. <laughs> or other, other people will say, that's right, everybody got to get on the Democratic Party train. And so, as I say early in the book, it's that we have to recover the claim that Christianity is political while being able to do that in a way that's neither right nor left, that it's an alternative politic. And that the alternative politic of the gospel is inevitably going to have certain things to sharply critique and even judge about the right. And it will have things that you sharply critique and judge about the left. And it will have certain things that can, it can be celebrated about the right and things that can be celebrated about the left. And so it's how do we, that goes back to the ad hoc thing, right? It's that it's always looking to 
bring what is specifically Christian to any given social issue, any given social dilemma or problem, and trying to bring the resources of the gospel for some sort of creative, new possible solution. And so you're right to point us to the fact that when we say Christianity is political, we don't mean we got to go get on, we got to figure out which American political party is right, or is correct. That's missing the point of what we're trying to say about Christianity as political. I wonder if a lot of listeners could also misunderstand that and assume, or maybe not just our listeners, but just people in general thinking, well, yeah, Christianity is political, that they think that we need to Christianize the political landscape. Is that also a danger in your mind? Yeah, yes, it is indeed. But that is falling prey to that habit of American civil religion that we've kind of hit on several times. And so again, if, if we keep realizing that the radical liberty of the gospel, which allows you to reject it, that means, again, there's always going to be tension between any existing institution of the principalities and powers and particular Christian witness. And, and so, I mean, it does bring in the difficulty of knowing um, at what point we Christians want to participate in steps forward in social policy or social institutions, which we can talk more about if you want. Mostly I'm going to be saying how I'm still arguing with myself about a lot of that. But yeah, the, the task again is not to Christianize America because America is a different thing than Christianity. And so I've, I've got one chapter in the Scandalous Witness where, where I talk about America is not a Christian nation, never has been, never will be, or something like that. And I think and you so even I, say that it can't be. Can't yeah. be, that's right. And so what I'm, what I'm arguing there is that a nation state is a different creature than the kingdom of God. And it has different commitments than the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is a community in which we've committed ourselves, if need be, to die for witness to the way of God in the world. Nation states don't do that. And they never, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know that they ever have, and I don't know that they can. Nation states don't do that. And so when you're talking about Christianizing America, it's simply a, a misconstrued, in my mind, it's an it's a, it's a ill-conceived agenda to try to be doing that. Again, this is not to say that whatever happens in America doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters a lot for our neighbors. And to the degree that we can participate in steps in the right direction, we should, but always being aware of the fact that there's some tension and ambiguity and grayness in all of those areas. I think it, it's also worthy to note that part of the reason why you can't, you know, Christianize the state in this way, and you, you alluded to this earlier, so I'm going to say it a, just in a slightly different way, and that's that the tool of the state, the only way it has operational capability at all is through the use of force. And so it can't, it can't do anything without that. I mean, if it doesn't have the use of force behind it, then, well, then it's just a voluntary interaction of people working together and whatnot. But the way in which the state has to operate is through the use of force. But that's not the way the church operates at all. It can't. If God has given us this radical liberty that says, you know, you, have, you can reject it, being part of this, you can reject this relationship, how much more so are we in the church supposed to operate similarly? 
And yeah. So it's like it, it's an antithetical operation. It's like they're or they're completely orthogonal to each other. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. And I'm start showing a little bit of my arguing with myself here about this because um, there's part of me that very much agrees with what you just said there, Norman. But at the same time, I'm also not quite so sure about some of it. So <laughs> speaking in terms of history, historical actualities, historical fact, right? The United States of America is what it is. Our early economy was built off of human chattel slavery. Yep. And it was built off of the the fact of, um, in many places, land grabs from indigenous population. And that's just historical fact, right? You know, know, that's a non-controversial historical fact. What we make of that, interpret that, you know, we're all we're still arguing about. But that's beyond dispute that those those things have happened, right? Yep. And so our economy, the American empire, has been grounded in the severe exercise of power. At the same time, I guess I guess my my only hesitation about saying that all social policy is grounded in violence. I'm hesitant about saying that because I'm just not, I'm just I'm still not convinced that that's true. And what I mean by that, I think that it's easier to see for example on a on a local level. So, you know, I don't know for example many people getting killed because they they're ticked off about the water utility upping their rates. By and large, most people pay their water bill who can afford to pay their water bill without any sort of insurrection. And if people have to get their water turned off, then there's still kind of policies to help people get taken care of. If, they're, if, they're, if their electric bill gets paid off, there's, there's policies in place to kind of help the poor who can't afford to take care of their, of their electric bill. And I guess it goes back to you know our, our differences between how we think about the political order. So you go back to somebody like Thomas Hobbes, you know, he, everything is grounded in violence, right? And all social institutions are grounded in the need to try to check violence. So we we band together in order to increase the odds that somebody's going to club us over the head and kill us. And I, I think, well, again, there's something about that that makes true that makes some makes some sense. But I don't know that lack of trust completely undergirds everything. And I think about this oftentimes, you know, I, I think about Hobbes when I'm driving home sometimes because it's like I'm trusting all sorts of people every time I get in my car that they're not going to come across that line. And we've agreed. There's a social agreement. It's a fiction. There's no there's no moral reality, moral rule against driving on one side of the road versus the other. It's a, it's a fiction that we've made up. And we've said, you're going to, I'm going to drive on this side of the road and you're going to drive on that side of the road. And we do it and we trust each other to do it all the time. And so I guess there's this part of me that wants to say, I don't know, there's still some element about communities, whether you're Christian or not, where we actually are operating at a level of trusting each other a lot. And so I guess I want to I want to hold on to that space and say, how can that reality be creatively, redemptively engaged to bring about some goods for our neighbors? Yeah, Lee, I I'd certainly appreciate the wrestling with yourself aspect because I've kind of done that myself and I'm sure Norman has too. I mean, we, we kind of go back and forth. I mean, that's why we also have, you know, each other to talk to and we get influenced by our guests. We get influenced by the people that we're close to. We talk out ideas and, you know, we learn new things. So I, uh, I appreciate that a lot. I do also appreciate your, your 
thinking about it locally, you know, with the water utility, you know, and poor people and like there's policies that help people there. I mean, I've often, I've often said things, you know, to the effect of, you know, the local or the better, yeah. because that doesn't resemble the state. It doesn't resemble the empire state that we, I guess in America, I shouldn't say the word empire stake that refers to New York, but it doesn't refer <laughs> to the empire we see in the, in the, right. in the Old Testament, in the New Testament that resembles what we call the state as libertarians. And so it's not governance per se, but it's these concentrations of power that are, you know, self-protecting, self-directed institutions that sort of take on their own embodiment. Whereas it's not really of the people, it's not really serving the people because the people are really sort of out of touch with it. They're not in control of it. They're not really, yeah. you know, so that's kind of where where I get into that part of the conversation. And, and you're totally right. Like, you know, there is, it's, there's a world of difference between a policy enacted by your local municipality and the Biden administration or the Trump administration or whatever federal federal entity. Yeah. Is it kind of like, because you're right, like there, there's some tricks to really parse out all of the aspects of this. And there's a big, you know, and as Doug said, like big difference between, say, the water board and the Biden administration. But is it, to use a, a terrible joke, perhaps, is it kind of like what the Supreme Court said about pornography? It's like, you, you can't really define it, but you sure know it when you see it. You know, I, <laughs> okay, maybe that's a really bad yeah. joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I was thinking about, though, you know, there's this there's this principle in Catholic social teaching called the principle of subsidiarity, and yes, it's a, yes. It's, it's a pretty helpful principle, I think. And what they yeah. say is that you ought to handle whatever matter at the smallest, lowest, or least centralized competent authority. Yep. And so if if an individual can take care of it, then the individual ought to take care of it. If the if the family can take care of it, the family ought to take care of it. If the local church congregation can, then they should. If you have to get the town council to take care of it, then they should. And so I think that's a pretty helpful rule of thumb in thinking about a lot of these sorts of things. So Lee, we could pick your brain and chat with you about this for like twice the amount of time we've already <laughs> talked to, but um, I have to pick wisely what I want to talk about next. And it's it's one of those things, every every proposition, which is the way that your book is structured in Scandalous Witness, is um, a little provocative. Um, there's a number of ones that we've, we've already talked about, you know, that America can't be a Christian nation. But there's another one that has to do with Christian values. And I grew up in a church era and just the milieu around me was that we needed to promote Christian values. Yeah. And there was a Christian values agenda that was part of it as part of the, you know, the religious right or the, I think it was the moral majority. And that those influences that I heard growing up in my formative years, I can imagine that there's a lot of Christians out there, listeners out there thinking, well, wait, what do you mean? Christian values corrupt Christianity, which is what you say in the book. So <laughs> yeah. we'll just leave the last topic we talk about in this conversation as like the hot button issue. <laughs> in my yeah. mind, that's just like, <laughs> who on earth could could object to that uh, or could object to Christian values? And yet you do in a, in a certain way. So go ahead. I'll let you sort of discuss that. Well, one of the things that, that um, I'm trying to do there is to show that how typically Christian values agendas are terribly selective and they are abstracting out certain moral so-called moral values or moral commitments from the whole of the narrative of scripture and in theory there's nothing wrong with me talking to my sons about christian values but what's happened in practice is that 
we've gotten so hung up on thinking about Christian values and the select number of issues that we put under the label of Christian values and then pushing those by hook or by crook in the public square that I really do think it's corrupting Christianity. So, for example, and I give a number of, I give a number of examples in the book, but um, if you think about you know, our famed Alabama Supreme Court justice who, who wanted to post up the Ten Commandments in his courtroom in Alabama, why does he want to post the Ten Commandments and not post the Sermon on the Mount? You know, why, why not judge not lest ye be judged over his judge's bench rather than the Ten Commandments? Why one and not the other? Why is it, for example, that the moral, so-called moral majority has been so focused about issues related to sex, but they have next to nothing to say about the militarism and the utter destruction of communities, nation states that stand opposed to American imperialism? Amen. <laughs> it's like, like why, why one and not the other? And it's yeah. like... So what you do when you have this sort of limited set of moralistic issues that you push and you say, well, this is what Christian values is about, you're, you're corrupting the witness of Christians in the world. And so, again, it, it, go, it takes us back to if we take the whole narrative of Scripture and then we ask ourselves, what does it look like to live out of the narrative of Scripture in our time, in our place? It's going to be much more interesting than a so-called Christian values agenda. It's it's amazing to consider the implications of what these sorts of of these sorts of things for how they've affected the church broadly in America. Right. To where this is, I think, I mean, these are like the roots of where we're going wrong in so many respects. Even in in our in, in the churches of Christ, which have historically been somewhat resistant to these types of even dare we call them parachurch institutions as as you know from you know we're, we're going real arcane knowledge here from church of christ history but you know, <laughs> with the debates about missionary organizations and stuff like that right yeah 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 and these are kind of at the like the pseudo roots of why they they were suspicious and and perhaps they were the, the debates went wrong back then for various reasons but the way in which it plays out now is pretty weird and we and and I think yeah. it's it, it bears consideration to each of us, even in an organization such as our own with the Libertarian Christian Institute, that even though we do have particular parts of our you know of messaging that we use, that we are always and forever partisans of the gospel first. That's our that's our allegiance here, right? And and so that's a it's a great it's a great thing to remember, you know, regardless of where you are, regardless of who you're potentially representing that's not specifically the church and at that particular moment that you you have a primary allegiance. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think that you know there are there are a variety of other sorts of potential problems with the way many people have thrown themselves into so-called Christian values agendas. I mean, for example, um, you know, some people have laid aside everything under the name of voting, a single issue voting about, say, abortion yep. and the overthrow of Roe v. Wade Supreme Court. But while that seems obvious, apparently, to some people that you would do that, it's, it's really not so obvious that one would do that. And moreover, it's not so obvious that there's not something fishy going on there 
yeah. the way <laughs> people have been sucked into believing that. I mean, for example, we've got on our podcast, I recently did a interview with Bill Kavanaugh, and Bill's a, a prominent Catholic theologian. And Bill had an article out in America Magazine, the Jesuit Magazine, and it's something like, it's, it's talking about Roe v. Wade and the failure of the pro-life movement. And what he's, what he's doing there is he's, he's, he's saying that most people don't, don't realize that when Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, that it was a six to, I think it was, six, it was either six to three or seven to two majority Republican appointees on the Supreme Court when Roe v. Wade got first put into law. What? Are you, you can't be serious. No. <laughs> and, 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 and moreover, it, it was, I think it was a seven to two vote. Yeah supporting Roe v. Wade, and one of the two that voted against it was a Democrat appointee. And then the the Republicans have had a majority of appointees on the Supreme Court for all of the last 50 years except one year, and that one year it was a 4-4. And so it's like, what's going on here? When everybody's throwing everything they can into getting Republican appointees on the Supreme Court to overthrow Roe v. Wade, and yet they've had a majority of appointees on the Supreme Court through all these years, and then so Bill starts asking the question, well, what, 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 what could explain that? And he has some interesting hypotheses about it. But then he goes on to say, well, look, really, if what you want to do is support a consistent pro-life agenda, then what you have to do is you also have to be willing to critique militarism. You also have to be willing to critique the running over the poor. You have to be willing to critique robber baron capitalism. You have to be willing to critique the lack of care for unborn life, you know? And so it's, it's a consistency. And the only way you do that truly is through exhibiting love for your neighbor. And it's not so clear you can exhibit love for your neighbor by hook or by crook overthrowing Roe v. Wade. And so again, it just, the more we will back up from the way in which we've been handed these debates and ask ourselves again, what would it look like to be living out of the whole narrative of scripture in this context, I think we can begin to find a lot more creative possibilities than those who have set up these conversations and arguments are giving us. I think that's a great kind of wrap a bow around it and hand that off to your friend <laughs> way to, to, to kind of close off here. Again, I'm, I think I speak for everybody who participates in LCI where I say, we are so grateful that you would come join us Dr. Camp, and uh, it's been it's been an honor having you here. Before we truly close off, though, why don't you remind us again where where all can we find your writings, your your shows? Where can we find you on the net to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, I, I want to tell you thank you, Norman and Doug, for both of y'all inviting me to come be with you, and uh, really grateful to have the conversation with you all, and uh, appreciate the kinds of conversations you all are making space for. Uh, as far as finding other stuff I'm doing, again, the latest book is called Scandalous Witness, A Little Political Manifesto for Christians that you can find wherever wherever you buy books. <laughs> and um, online, we have a lot of these kinds of conversations and other conversations as well, but we have some of these sorts of conversations on our podcast, our Tokens Show podcast, which you can find on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, but also on our website at tokensshow.com. And if there's anybody uh, in Middle Tennessee area want to come join us for a live show, we'd love for you to come. And you, again, you can find out information on the website, tokenshow.com, about live events that we're having coming up. Well, my, my brother-in-law is occasionally on the show as well, so I'm going to figure out a way to get down there, visit yes. him and visit you and yes. be, a, be part of, well, at least come 
come hang out on the show one time. <laughs> yeah, we'd, lo- we'd love for you to come come hang out someday. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for being here. And uh, so this has been Dr. Lee Camp. We're grateful and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.